0: This is The Foreign Affairs Inbox, a podcast providing analysis of critical global issues by the Elliott School of International Affairs here at George Washington University. And I'm your host, Koji Flindeau. To kick things off, I guess, the first broad question is just, who are the Uyghurs and can you describe their situation? The Uyghurs are
1: a minority in the People's Republic of China. Percentage-wise, they're a very small percentage of the Chinese population, but they number at least 10 million, maybe closer to 11 million inside China. And plus, there's a significant uh, population of Uyghurs across the border in the, the Central Asian states of Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan in particular. They speak a Turkic language, uh, so it's closer to Turkish than it is to Chinese. In general, uh, they're Muslims. They identify the area that they live in in China as their homeland. It's Mm. called the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region officially uh, by the Chinese state But a lot of Uyghurs actually refer to it as Eastern Turkestan, Hmm. which is harking back to the idea that this region was really more part of Central
0: Asia. Right. And China is a really big place. So where specifically can we sort of geographically locate Xinjiang?
1: If you look at a map of China, it's the uh, kind of northwest quadrant of the country. Right. It's not quite a fourth of the country, but it is quite a large uh, region. Yeah. Um, It borders on Mongolia, the Central Asian states, and a little bit with Russia as well. Mm. So it's really very close to the area that people refer to as Central Asia. Mm. And the Uyghurs are particularly, I think, important in international affairs today because they're undergoing an extensive crackdown by the Chinese government. There is a history where Uyghurs have uh, long felt that They deserve more self-determination over their homeland. The Chinese state has been very direct in suggesting that this region has always been part of China and the Uyghurs are not indigenous to this region.
0: And Uh, how far back does that conflict over territorial integrity and independence go?
1: uh, I would say you really need to begin in the mid-18th century – I usually tell my students that I don't believe in ancient history because if you go much further back than that, there's not a lot of strong evidence about what people lived where and so on. In fact, there wasn't really a Chinese state even in the middle 18th century. It was the Qing Empire, which was uh, led by Manchus and they were the first state based in China that really absorbed the territory that Uyghurs view as their homeland. Going back centuries, there have been interaction between Chinese states in that region. But in the modern sense, it really becomes a part of China in the 1750s. Throughout the period where the Qing dynasty ruled the area, there was periodic revolts against Qing rule. Mm. And then when the modern Chinese nation state first emerged in 1911, it became a part officially of modern China. Right In the early 20th century, there were two in particular, two large revolts that were uh, spearheaded by Uyghurs, included other Central Asian peoples living in the region, and uh, they established two short-term nation states uh, that were independent from China uh, in parts of that region.
0: So can you bring us back to the present then and how Mm -hmm. those sort of historical claims relate to what's going on now?
1: Yeah, well, so I think a a major turning point in the Uyghur's recent history was after 9-11 and the attacks on the United States, the beginning of the global war on terror Within six weeks of those attacks, the Chinese government put out a white paper that was uh, claiming that they faced a serious terrorist threat from Uyghurs and that this was financed by al-Qaeda and was – it included basically all of the Uyghur activists abroad outside of China. And this was important because it was a very sudden shift from former – former uh, policies in China that were uh, viewing Uyghurs as potential separatists, once they became branded as terrorists, that began to change the situation
0: significantly. And how did how did that sort of process of labeling and casting Uyghurs as terrorists play out on the ground?
1: Well, you know, initially there wasn't a lot of difference in Chinese state policy because uh, throughout the 1990s there have been campaigns – to crush Uyghur separatism. Um, so any kind of passive expressions by Uyghurs of the idea that they should have independence were um, punished quite severely at that time. So initially, the real change was just the discourse. Instead of separatists, they were now terrorists. But with time, um, my research has shown that characterizing this group as terrorists uh, began to really exclude them from society writ large. Mm. It created kind of an ethnic profile of these people as potentially dangerous to everyone else. Mm. And and that process has been somewhat gradual since 2001. And to some degree, I've argued that it has pushed a lot of Uyghurs to become actually more militant. Because in 2001, when the Chinese state – made claims that there was an organized Uyghur terrorist group abroad that was planning attacks and had had planned attacks throughout the 1990s. That was not really an accurate statement at all. There was not really any sort of organized um, insurgency of Uyghurs in the 1990s. And there really wasn't throughout the first decade of the war on terror. But by 2013, we start to see Uyghurs carrying out attacks both inside their homeland in, in China and elsewhere in China.
0: So what about Chinese policy created that shift from you know, the 90s in 2001 until 2013, where we see active, perhaps, resistance to the Chinese state at a level that we didn't see before? How did Chinese policy create that? Is you mm-hmm. argue?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think one aspect is the war on terror uh, is kind of implicitly targeting an ideology of some sort, although it's not very well expressed by those who um, are fighting against it. It's assumed that there's a radical Islamic tendency which becomes something that can be classified as cultural values of a whole group of people. So what you saw in the um, mid to uh, later 2000s, we saw, uh, among other things, the Chinese state really targeting Uyghur culture, Uyghur language, dress, in particular, anything that entailed expressions of Islam, whether the person was religious or not, like wearing beards, wearing headscarves. Um, the Chinese state was trying to discourage that at all lengths, and I think that that really uh, hit the Uyghur community hard. Mm. And also that tendency really um, I think expanded to not only the Chinese government but to the Chinese public during the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing because during those Olympic Games, the Chinese state was claiming that there was a, a serious threat of a Uyghur attack during the Olympics. Uyghurs were essentially quarantined where they weren't able to get hotel rooms in Beijing. A large number of Uyghurs living in Beijing were moved back to the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region and that really uh, raised the fear of Chinese citizens that this group of people may be dangerous Um, and I think that's had very detrimental impact.
0: Right. Uh-huh. And so beyond the 2008 Beijing Olympics, how has that targeting of Uyghur customs and Uyghur culture played out? How have you know, people been imprisoned? Have they been targeted by police? What does that look like? Well,
1: so it, there, there was kind of a – for quite some time I guess beginning around 2013 kind of this uh, escalating cycle of repression – Violence, repression. So after every incidence of violence, um, you saw the government crack down more, arrest more people, um, suspect anybody who was going to mosque, who um, seemed to be religious just by the way they dressed. And particularly after the 2009 riots in Urumqi, which were the worst ethnic riots in China's modern history, um, where Uyghurs and Han Chinese basically formed vigilante gangs on the street and were killing each other. Wow. After that, there was a major crackdown where they, um, the Chinese government banned the internet in the Uyghur region for an entire year wow. um, and prevented all international phone calls, so basically cut the region off from the rest of the world. And also scores of Uyghurs just disappeared, mm-hmm. um, which was – well-documented by Human Rights Watch. But the real, the real change happened in 2016 because in 2016, the former party secretary from Tibet, Chen Kuang guo he uh, came to be the party secretary of uh, the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. And he has really established uh, almost a dystopian uh, security and surveillance state in the region. And there were there was a lot of there's been a lot of coverage of this uh, in international media because it's very Orwellian mm. and it's shocking that you know there's cameras everywhere with facial recognition they're taking all the DNA samples of all Uyghurs they're uh, checking smartphones and putting um, deliberately putting spyware on them they're ma- they're actually making Uyghurs that have uh, not smartphones, give them up wow. because um, you can't track somebody as easily with just a cellular phone. But if they have a smartphone and you put you know, tracking software on it, you can actually track them like a GPS. And all of this goes into a database um, which is being used for what they call predictive policing. So it's almost like they're trying to see – who might become a criminal and let's try to, try to change them before they become criminals. And, and the most shocking part of these developments is that around late 2016, early 2017, we started hearing, um, reports that there were these new re-education camps established throughout this region. And subsequently, it's been well documented that, you know, up to a million Uyghurs have been put in these facilities. And do we know what it's
0: like to be in one of those facilities?
1: Yes. There's been some very revealing eyewitness accounts. I actually talked to somebody who had been in the region, uh, is a Uyghur. I'm not even going to reveal their gender just to protect their uh, identity. But they had a very close friend who worked in one and accounted Uh, What happens in these uh, camps and these camps now, the daily uh, activities of the the people in the camps begin with forced exercise outside and singing patriotic songs. But then it's four hours of Chinese language classes and the instructors actually is behind a fence and can't even go into the classroom and the students all have to sit perfectly still with their arms crossed the entire time and aren't allowed to talk to each other. They can only answer the uh, instructor. And if they even begin to fidget or move their feet or whatever, a voice comes over a loudspeaker because this is all being surveilled by camera saying you have to stand up straight. Um, And then that's followed by four hours of intense kind of propaganda Material that they, you know, they're shown films. They have discussions about what it, what an extremist looks like, how to identify them, how not to be an extremist, that the dangers of Islam, and included in that, these people have to do um, what they call self criticism se- sessions, where they wow. they talk about their crimes. Um, sure. Uh, so it's, it's a very dystopian kind of picture in the region right now, and it's virtually cut off from the outside world. So um, the Chinese government is claiming that these are just vocational schools and there's nothing ominous about them. But investigative journalists, scholars and Uyghurs, of course, are coming out with accounts that are much different.
0: And there are one million people in these camps. Um, what do we expect about the future of them? Are they likely to stay put? What's the international pressure been?
1: There was a universal periodic
0: review of China's human rights activities
1: uh, at the UN, uh, and it was somewhat disappointing. Thirteen states did bring up this issue uh, in particular uh, and and spoke about it. It was mostly, you know, United States, Canada, European states and uh, Australia. So – while there were 13 states that brought this up and were quite aggressive about trying to get answers from the Chinese government, that left you know close to 100 other states that said nothing about them. Mm. Uh, and that includes the Muslim world where this these measures are very obviously attacking their religion. But I think given China's economic leverage around the world, a lot of states are reticent to criticize them.
0: And what has China's government said in response to this? Well,
1: they've been saying that um, they actually had a documentary that came out recently about the camps. Initially, they had denied their existence and now they've recognized them and they're saying that they are vocational training. They're giving people job skills and they're also discouraging uh, terrorism and extremism. And in their documentary, of course, they have lots of smiling Uyghurs talking about how this was a very important experience for them and now they know their mistakes and now they – Will be reformed, and they even had a Uyghur come to the UN uh, review wow. to give a similar story. So it's you know it's one of these situations where it's one state's word against other states, mm. and um, it's very difficult to document thoroughly. But it's very obvious that this is happening, and if you know any Uyghurs, you'll find out that virtually. Every Uyghur out there has somebody in their family who's in one of these camps. Yeah. One very concrete thing I've seen is I've had uh, communications from Uyghur students studying in the United States, and these are people who are not by any stretch of the imagination political. They're very torn about what to do because one of the th- one of the criteria that often lends to people being put into camps is if they've been abroad or wow. if they have family members abroad. So. As their student visas run out and they're afraid to go back to China, their family's telling them not to go back to China. And yet they also don't necessarily want to uh, declare asylum. One because they may want to go back to their homeland and their families. And two, because they're worried that if they do that, their families um, might get more and more pressure. Inside China, so it's a very um, it's a very sad situation uh, right now for Uyghurs both in China and abroad.
0: Yeah, so China's put up these camps. There's been more resistance from the Uyghurs, as you argue, and people are afraid to go back. And yet, China hasn't backed down. So, how does this situation resolve itself?
1: Well, so that's a really good question. I mean, I think in some ways, China, uh, the Chinese state, you know really wants to completely pacify this region and more or less erase mm-hmm. the Uyghur dominance of the region culturally, linguistically, and so on. So there's a couple different things that might happen. Uh, right now I think you know the, the fear of going to a camp is ensuring that any Uyghurs outside the camp are uh, essentially trying to be very loyal to the state, um, trying to speak Chinese as much as they can, not speak Uyghur, not uh, go to mosque, not be religious in any way uh, and integrate themselves as much as possible. But one has to believe that when – if they allow people out of these camps, they're going to be quite angry. So it's unclear if the Chinese state is going to keep them there um, indefinitely as kind of a warning sign or whether they're going to also try to start – moving some of the Uyghurs out of there into other parts of China and mixing them uh, with other nationalities and in particular Han Chinese. So there was a report just today out of an official Chinese newspaper that they were going to uh, relocate 160,000 wow. farmers and herders from poor areas of the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region and put them in cities and tourist areas. So you know, there's already been some movement towards trying to relocate populations, and it's possible that we may see that more. In some ways, what the Chinese government's doing right now, I think, is best characterized by the term "ethnic cleansing." However, it's it's a very new kind of ethnic cleansing, I would I would argue, or a unique form of it, because that term comes from Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia during the uh, civil war. where different nationalities were trying to remove other nationalities from territory, so cleansing the territory. At the moment, the Chinese state doesn't seem to be doing that, but they certainly seem to be trying to cleanse Uyghurs of their Uyghurness or at least those attributes of their Uyghurness that um, the state is worried about and … I think in the future, it's a strong possibility that it could become kind of a more standard form of ethnic cleansing where they try to move them out of that territory altogether.
0: You've been listening to the Foreign Affairs Inbox from the Elliott School of International Affairs. If you liked what you listened to today, make sure to hit subscribe. Rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend. Our show is produced by Dave Haft. Our editor is Christina Wan. And thanks to the Public Affairs team, Robin Kahn and Colette Kent, for their collaboration.